Uh, just by way of review, we've already learned that Revelation is a letter. It's a letter that's written to seven specific churches, flesh and blood churches, in the Roman province of Asia uh, during the first century when Rome is in power. The historical context of this letter, these seven churches are about to undergo severe persecution. Not just from Rome, but from the emperor himself. One that's going to be ugly, bloody, and devastating. So we looked at chapter 1, which is the intro. Revelation uh, 2 and 3 are the specific letters to these specific churches. In fact, they're actually written from Christ himself. We're going to actually skip over that for right now. We're going to go back to it. Um, but we're going to step now into the vision that God, the ultimate shepherd, pastor, is going to provide for Pastor John, who is pastor of this region in the Roman Empire. And Pastor John is going to now give this vision to the seven pastors of these seven churches. And uh, so we're going to step into this, and, and I hope you see over the next several months as we study this, that this vision is not just a doom and gloom, depressing vision. It is here to pastor these churches in light of what they're about to face. It's like Jeremiah 10, 29, 10 and 11, where God says, I know the plans I have for you. In light of everything that's going to happen, I have a plan to prosper you and to give you a hope and a future. So that you would seek me with everything you have. So that's the context. Um, we're going to look at a text today that is just, I hardly even want to touch it. I mean, all the, the, the best worship comes out of the two chapters that we're going to look at the next two weeks, Revelation 4 and 5. Um, it's such a precious and holy text. So I, I, I'm going to just say this at the outset. There's no way a human being can do justice to Revelation 4 and 5. I'm just going to say that at the outset. But let's step into this. Revelation 4, if you can stand, uh, please stand for the reading of God's word. After this I looked, and there before me was a door, standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Now once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone standing on it, sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby. A rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumble, rumbles, and pearls of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God, and in front of the throne 
was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. And in the center around the throne were four living creatures. And they were covered with eyes in front and in the back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a a face like a man. The fourth had the face of a flying eagle. And each of the four living creatures had six wings. And they were covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. And day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne, and they too join in worship who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory, honor, and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. This is God's word for today. You can be seated. If you're looking for a theme verse in Revelation, you'd have to uh, probably go to chapter 11, verse 15. And this is what it reads. It says, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he, the Lord Christ, will reign forever and ever. That's the theme of Revelation. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he, the Lord Christ, will reign forever and ever. Now listen, that is more than just a proposition. That is more than just an idea. That is more than just wishful theology. That is reality. And that is the reality that God is inviting John into. Not just, John, I want you to know this by hearing it, but I want to show it to you. I want you to see it. And so our text begins where God summons John and and, and the door is open and he's brought into the very courts of God. I don't remember if you remember, I don't know if you remember the first time you went to a professional sporting event. Um, I remember as a little kid, the first time I went to Tiger Stadium, and just walking up to that stadium and feeling that sense of anticipation, and then you kind of walk through the bowels of the stadium and through the concessions, and you can start to feel the intensity of what's going on, and, and then you enter that gate, that entrance, and, and, and you, you just, maybe it was just me, but to just see uh, that, that field and all its green and beauty and the players out there. Um, to go to a Michigan game, I just took the kid that I mentored. Sorry, I couldn't uh, not talk about Michigan a little bit this morning. But I, I, I mentored this kid at Stocking and a couple weeks ago. Um, he'd never been to a, to a sporting event. So I felt like I got to relive that experience uh, all over again through him as he was just, I could see it. He was getting giddy and giddier as we got closer and closer. And then as we walked through our gate, I mean, it was just. Imagine 
going through the entrance or the gate to the courts of God. That's what John is attempting to describe. And you can tell uh, by, by how he describes it that uh, he's in the stadium, but he's in the cheap seats. I mean, he's, he, he's, he's way up there in that nosebleed section looking down on, on what's before him. And, and again, what we have to remember that, that what we want to know when, when we read this is what exactly did John see? Because we're Western. But John is a Jew, and he's going to give us truth, reality, what he sees through metaphor and symbol. Now, that doesn't mean that what John is describing, describing he's not describing what he actually sees. But I don't want to get too caught up in that, because what's more important is what does it mean? The stuff that he sees. So the first thing that, that, that we see in, in terms of what John describes here is that God's three-in-one nature is unveiled. I mean, it starts with the voice of God. And some of you have a red-letter Bible that, that flushes out the words of Jesus. So um, when, when that voice says, come up here, John, and I will show you what soon must take place, that's in red because Jesus is the one who's, who's bringing him into the courts. It's, it's the word of God, Jesus, who's, whose voice is being heard. And as John enters, his gaze immediately goes to God. But all John can say is, he was like. Or his appearance was, was like this. Because really, at the end of the day, all John can see is the brilliance and the glory and the radiance that's emanating from God. The Bible says no one can see God. So what John sees is, is what emanates from God, and he describes it as jasper and carnelian. These are reddish-yellow um, varieties of quartz. They're the same colors that emanate from the sun. And so when God unveils himself, because that's what is going on here, all that can be seen is, is, is his radiance, his brilliance. But here's the deal. If, if you want to know what God looks like, if you would put a mirror before God, the image staring back at God would be Christ. Hebrews 1 said, The sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. So, so what John is already describing here is you have the Father sitting on his throne, emanating all his radiance and brilliance, and that radiance and brilliance is Christ. And then verse 5, it says, the seven spirits which are before the throne. The number seven uh, in the Hebrew mind is, is the number of completion. It's the number of wholeness. In fact, it's, it's the number uh, that the Jewish people attach to God because only God is complete. 
So that's just a metaphorical way of saying God's spirit, the seven spirits, the complete spirit, the Holy Spirit, the whole spirit. And then John continues to describe this. He talks about the thunder, the, the lightning and the thunder. Um, all of this just speaks to the glorious presence of God. It reminds us of in Exodus when, when, when God's presence comes down on Mount Sinai. So awesome was his presence. And it was accompanied with this, this thunder and this lightning that the people on that day when they're supposed to go up the mountain to meet with God, they're so deathly afraid. And all they can say to Moses is, Moses, get us out of here. You go meet up with God for us. Is that how you view God? Is this in your thoughts about God? Then John says that before the throne in verse 6 is, is this sea um, that looks like glass. He, he calls it crystal, this sea of crystal. See, the ancients believed that at creation, God divided the waters. There's the waters above, and there are the waters below. We've talked about this before. The waters below the earthly sea, it symbolizes chaos. It symbolizes the abyss. It, it symbolizes the evil forces, because in the Bible, the dragon comes out of the sea. The beast comes out of the sea. All the evil forces dwell in, in the abode of the sea. The waters above then are, are, are the heavenly sea because this is what the sea looks like before its maker. It's not chaos. It's not this uncontrollable force. It's still waters. It's Maim Kaim. It's, it, 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 it's waters of shalom. It's waters of peace. Now, because the, the earthly sea is, uh, earth is a metaphor for chaos, that's going to be a strong theme in Revelation. But I want you just to, to see how, how this idea works itself out in the Hebrew scriptures. In Psalm 93, right in the middle of it, the psalmist says, The seas have lifted up, Lord. The seas have lifted up their voice. The seas have lifted up their pounding ways. He's not talking about the literal sea. He's talking about the forces of evil that are pounding and beating against probably the writer, the chaos he sees in the world. But you know what's bookend on both sides of this psalm? This psalm starts off with the greatest truth there is in Scripture the Lord reigns, He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed in majesty. He is armed with strength. Indeed, the world is established and it is firm and secure. And your throne, O oh God, was established long ago. You are from all eternity. But the seas have lifted up. The seas have lifted up their voice. The seas have lifted up their pounding ways. But mightier than the thunder of the great waters, mightier than the breakers of the sea, the Lord on high, he is mighty. And your word, O oh Lord, will stand firm. So, God is the Alpha 
He is the omega. He is the beginning and he's the end. He's got the seed. As bad as it looks sometimes. In fact, Jesus walking on water, some people just kind of treat this as kind of like, okay, this is just another one of those magic trips, tricks that Jesus throws out. Guys, I can do this. Guys, I can do that. Hey, guys, look at this. I can walk on water. Listen, when those disciples saw their rabbi not just walking on the chaos and the abyss, but telling it to shut up, and all of a sudden it turned to a sea of crystal. That is the first time in the text where it says those guys worshipped him. They fell at his feet and said, you are Lord. Now going back to this throne, John again describes in concentric circles gathered around it our first four living creatures, which are then followed by 24 elders and then followed then by the heavenly hosts of angels. Let's just start with the four living creatures. They're, they're, they're very similar to what Isaiah describes in Isaiah 6, which interestingly enough, um, our children are studying that text. Those seraphim, which had those six wings covering their eyes and their feet, very similar to, to those uh, seraphim, or very similar to the cherubim in Ezekiel 1. But when you read these things, there are a few minor differences because these are human writers attempting to describe what they see. Now, what are these four living creatures? Well, they are angelic beings with six wings, stunningly awesome and beautiful to behold. Probably enough that if our eyes beheld them alone, we would be on our faces before them, worshiping them. John says there are four of them. Four, again, in the Bible, represents the totality of creation. You have the four directions or the four winds. You have the four rivers that flow out of Eden to water the whole earth. You have the four corners of the earth. And then John tells us that each of these great angelic beings has a different face. Look at verse 7. One has the face of a lion, the other of an ox, the other of a man, the other of an eagle. Now what I'm going to say right now is just bear with me. These four faces correspond exactly with the signs of the zodiac. In fact, the 12 signs are, are broken into four groups, three per group, with one of these things being primary. And I just want to uh, show you how the ancient world thought about the zodiac. I think I have a PowerPoint. These are the, the, the heads of these four groupies. You have the lion or Leo, which not only represents the season of spring, but also fire. You have the bull or ox, which is Taurus, which represents the season of summer and all the earth. You have the human face, which is Scorpio, which represents the fall season and also water. You have the ego, ego which is Pegasus, which represents winter, um, which is the air. Why am I saying this? Because the four living creatures represent the whole created cosmos in both heaven and earth. And if you're still bothered right now, 
I'll add a biblical piece to this, which is what you need. I know. I know, you guys. The 12 tribes of Israel also were given a symbol, a tribal symbol, derived from the text. I don't know if th- what this is going to do with you, but the 12 tribes' symbols correspond exactly with the 12 signs of the zodiac. And when God even instructs the 12 tribes on how they are to arrange themselves around his throne on earth, the tabernacle, it shows that that is an exact replica on earth of his throne room in heaven. Because on one side you have Judah the lion, on the other side you have Ephraim the bull, on the other side you have Reuben the man, and on the other side you have Dan the eagle. Not just corresponding with the signs of the zodiac, but corresponding to God's throne room in heaven. God made the stars. God put them in their place. And the heavens declare the glory of God. In fact, I was thinking about these two texts in light of this. Hebrews 8 tells us that um, the, 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 the tabernacle on earth is a copy, a a shadow of of what is in heaven. That's why Moses was warned that when he builds his tabernacle, he had to listen to exactly the pattern that God gave to him. And then in Revelation 11, verse 19, it says, Then God's temple in heaven was open, and within his temple was seen the Ark of the Covenant. Again, there's this consistency that what God wants on earth in terms of his worship is consistent with his heavenly throne room. Next, you have the 24 elders. These are not angels. They symbolize the people of God who have passed on from this world. Now, the reason I say symbolize is because in Revelation 5, verse 11, which is a continuation of this, of this throne room vision, It talks about the 24 elders being myriads upon myriads, which is 10,000 upon 10,000. So 24 here is symbolic. And we know that 24 is divisible by 12, and 12 is in, in the Bible symbolizes a complete family. God blessed Ishmael with 12 sons. He gave Ishmael a complete family. Later, uh, God blesses uh, Jacob, Israel, with 12 sons. That's a complete family. They became the 12 tribes, which is God's complete family. There's a reason why Jesus didn't have 10 disciples or 9 disciples, but why he had 12 disciples, because it represents this complete family, the family of God. Now, these elders have white robes to also symbolize their status, and Their status is that of priests. Because this is the mission that God has placed on his people going all the way back to Abraham, all the way up to now. We are a kingdom of priests. Which is why one of the things that God said to his people, he said, I want you to wear your uniform. So he said, I want Everyone, throughout all the ages, 
wear tassels. Because tassels in the ancient world represented royalty and priest. In fact, God said, I want one of these tassels, I want you to color it blue. And again, blue was on the, 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 the robe of the high priest, and blue in the ancient world depicts not only priestly status, but royal status. And God said, I, I, I want you to not forget who you are. I want you to remember who you belong to and why you are here. So I want you every single day to wear your royal priesthood uniform. Now listen, there's a reason why the New Testament, when it talks about us as God's people, one of the descriptions is that we are called a royal priesthood. So when we see these 24 elders who represent the totality of the people of God who are before uh, the throne, who have gone before us, dressed in their white robes, this is God's royal priestly family gathered in the living room around the living God. And if you're wondering right now where, where, where some of your loved ones and friends who have gone on before you, where they are right now, Revelation 4 tells us. And it not only tells us where they are, but it tells us what they are doing. They are getting off their throne, they are taking off their crown, and they are laying it before God, and they're worshiping Him. All glory, all power, all honor belongs to you. And they're singing holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You know, the Hebrews had a way of, of describing something as ultimate. They, they would double a word. So this week, if they were talking about the storm that hit Florida... They would say, we didn't just get hit by a storm. They would say, we got hit by a storm storm. They, they would double the word to just, or, or for instance, in Isaiah 26, it says, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. Perfect peace there in the Hebrew is, it's, it's shalom, shalom. You keep him in not just shalom, but in shalom, shalom whose mind has stayed on you. This is the only tripling in the Bible. Holy, holy, holy. God isn't just holy. God isn't just holy, holy. God is holy. Holy, holy. He's so awesome. He's so beyond us. He's so set apart. He's so not like us. 
holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You and I are nothing but dust particles in the presence of this God. And that's not to insult anyone here, but that is just to make an attempt to, to exalt who God is. And my heart needs to hear this. I, I need to preach this word to my heart because my heart can so quickly minimalize God. We are so quick to bring God down to our level. And part of the reason for that is, is because God actually, in Christ, stoops to our level. Which is far more than saying you becoming a slug or a worm. But I don't want to run to that today. I want to linger today in who God is. Because I don't want to stand before him someday and, and, and be ashamed at how small I made him to be in my mind, in my worship, in my preaching. He's holy, holy, holy. Who was and is and is to come. Revelation 6 verse 15 describes the day when, when the veil will be removed and we will all behold him. And this is what it says. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, everyone else, both slave and free, they will hide in caves among the rocks of the mountains. They will call unto the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Even Isaiah, in, in, in all his righteousness as a prophet, when he comes into the throne room of God, all he can say is, I'm ruined, and my people are ruined, because my eyes have seen the king. And it's throughout the Bible that when God's people encounter this God, there's this kind of response. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. God even says this about himself in Revelation 1. Um, he says, I am the one who was, I am the one who is, and I am the one who is to come. But when he says this, he precedes it with, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Now listen, in, in, in the Greek, it's, it's I am the Arche and the Telos. And, and arche means more than beginning, and telos means more than end. God isn't just the beginning and the end, because what arche means also is source. And, and, and telos means more than end, it means the goal to which everything is moving towards. So when God says, I am the arche and the telos, the, the beginning and the end, he's saying, I'm the source of all things. I'm the source of all life, and I'm also the goal and its purpose. Everything flows from God. 
Everything is flowing back to God. All of life is going to return to God. All of life is encompassed by God. Which means if you remove God, there is no life. There's no meaning. There's no purpose. If, you, if we could extract God from, from the cosmos... The whole cosmos would instantly disintegrate if you ex extract God from your own life. Your own life is going to disintegrate and fall apart. Paul said it so well. He said, in him we live and we move and we have our being. Are you know what this means? Well, let me start with these, these seven churches who are about to have their world turned upside down. They're about to lose things that are precious to them. They're about to lose their property. Some are going to lose their rights. Some are going to lose their reputations. Some are even going to lose their very own lives. And you, here you have God, the pastor, pastor, giving John, Pastor John this vision to give to the seven pastors of these churches this vision. And I want us to see right out of the gates that this vision isn't some doom and gloom apocalyptic thing. It begins with the most comforting reality there is, especially in times of suffering, that God sits on the throne. To you churches in Asia Minor, you live in a world where it might look like Caesar is in charge. It might look like Caesar is the king. It might look like and feel like Rome is the victor. And that you are the loser and on the losing side. But guess what? God sits on the throne. God reigns. And God says, I win my Christ wins, my side wins, and all power and all glory and all wisdom are mine. Ephesians 1 to 10, Paul says this, he says, one day all things in heaven and earth will be summed up in Christ. In other words, God has a complete plan for this world. And his plan includes our choices. It, it, it includes even all the bad things that happen. And, and yet his plan is orchestrating absolutely everything. It's working. It's purposing. It, it, it's planning all things for, for good, for the praise of his glory. I loved how this gets flushed out in the, in the Lord of the Rings in the last book. After this great apocalyptic event, Sam Ganji wakes up just thinking that everything is lost. He's lost everything. But instead, he wakes up and he discovers that his friends are around him. And he cries out. He says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. And then he says, but I even thought I was dead. And then he asks this profound question. He says, is everything sad, Gandalf, going to come untrue? Ephesians 1 verse 10 answers that question with a resounding yes. And so is this vision that we're going to learn about in Revelation. 
that God's plan is going to be summed up one day in Christ. That heaven and earth are going to be brought together under Christ. That there's going to be a full restoration to the life that we lost, which includes our bodies and our homes and our loved ones. They're going to be returned and protected and beautified. Everything sad will come untrue. But here's what so many Christians want to do today. They want to let God off the hook in times of suffering. They want to say and think that God is not sovereign in suffering. That God has nothing to do with suffering. That that he can't do anything about my suffering. And see, to, to say that or to think that is to take God off his throne. And you do it to cut your nose off to spite your face. You're biting the hand that feeds you. Because when life is most unraveling, when when I'm losing things that are precious to me, or I'm dealing with something that just doesn't even make sense, the most comforting reality there is, is God sits on the throne. And that he is the alpha, and he is the omega. He is the beginning and the source. He is the end and the goal to which everything is going to. And if he's got this, and he's got this, then he's got everything in between. And I can say, God, you've got this. I trust you. And he's sovereign. He's sovereign over Satan. He's sovereign over the forces of of evil. He's sovereign over elections. He's sovereign over all the world rulers and all the things that are taking place. He's sovereign over injustice, hatred, tragedy. He's sovereign over death. Remember Joseph? Who spent all those years in pits, then in prisons, being mistreated and rejected by his own brothers. At the end of his life, he could still look at his brothers and say, what you guys meant for evil, God meant it for good. And I think how how bitter and and, and angry Joseph could have become. But, But for Joseph to be able to say this, he had to know that God is on the throne. And that even though I'm in this pit right now, and even though I'm in this prison, and even though I've been mistreated, and and all this injustice has happened to me, God, you're on the throne. You reign. You rule. You got it. I'm going to be blunt right now. If, 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 If this idea of God being on the throne doesn't just thrill you and make you dance, then you probably suffer from a lot of pride and entitlement. Because I know some of you twitch at that that idea that that God is on the throne, especially in times of suffering, because you want to be on the throne. 
You don't like it that God has complete control because you want control. You want to call the shots. And the reason why some of you are bitter and angry, that's an amen, I think, to what I'm saying. <laughs> Some of you are bitter and angry because you think you know better than God how your life should go. You think you know better than God how this world should go. I didn't say all bitterness and all anger, but it's a lot of it. It's pride that says, God, how could you? It's pride that says, God, I don't deserve this. It's pride that says, God, you owe me a better life. In fact, to some extent, when you read the book of Job, this is what Job is doing with God. But at some point in the game, God comes to Job and says, Job, brace yourself like a man. Can you handle the truth? The truth is, I made the world. I'm the creator. I'm the ruler. I'm the alpha. I'm the omega. And what a comfort it is to, to, to know that God is on the throne, that in your cancer, God sits on the throne. He's got it. That in your broken marriage, God is on the throne. That when your kids are rebelling and rebelling against God, God's on the throne. We need God, not on our terms. On his terms. We don't need a God that, 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 that's fashioned according to our likes and our wishes in the moment. And this is a God that many of you have settled for. We need a God who, who was, who is, and who is to come. Who is holy, holy, holy. Who reigns over all things. Who is most to be feared. And there's only one response to this God. Worship. And the scene in Revelation 4 shows us that the whole cosmos worships the one who sits on the throne. And, and, and worship is not just singing, yea, God. You know, you've encountered the real God when you're like the 24 elders who all they can do is get off their throne and fall face down and take off their crowns before the king. Does that describe you? Does that describe your life? Does that describe your heart? Is your heart and your life and the totality of all that you are, is it, is it bowed before him? Because one day, when we behold him, everything in heaven and on earth 
will be face down before the king. Rather than just hearing a sermon this morning, I think it would be good for us to reflect, digest, take in, fix our eyes, repent. So let's just enter a season of silence right now. You are worthy, our Lord, our God. Receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. And by your will they are created. And have their being.